Hello, I'm Alexander Rose, the Executive Director of the Long Now Foundation. Here at Long Now, we do our best to pay attention to track how human societies have evolved over the course of centuries and millennia. When you take this long view, a lot of things that seem important can often turn out to be passing trends, relevant in the now, but not so much in the long now. So when we saw the recent article in The Atlantic by social psychologist Jonathan Haidt postulating that the changes we are seeing in recent political and social discourse are not just a passing fad, we knew this was worth a deeper discussion. Jonathan Haidt is a professor of ethical leadership at New York University's Stern School of Business and an author of a number of popular books on the moral and ethical underpinnings of our societies. This conversation focuses on his most recent work, an upcoming book called Life After Babel, Adapting to a World We May Never Again Share, due out in O2024. It's about the particular ways in which social media is increasingly radicalizing and polarizing our culture. Joining Jonathan today in conversation are Long Now founders Stuart Brand and Kevin Kelly. Stuart, Kevin, and Jonathan's conversation is wide-ranging, touching on questions of technological optimism, morality versus ethics, teen mental health, possible platform tweaks that could reduce some of this harm, and just how long this next cycle of history might last. Before we delve into Jonathan's analysis of social media and democratic discourse, a quick thank you. The Long Now Foundation is entirely supported by donors and members. If you are already a member, thank you. Your support means the world to us. If not, please consider becoming the newest member of Long Now and supporting this series. It only takes a few minutes to set up, and after that, you'll be connected to a whole world of long-term thinking. This podcast is brought to you by Stripe, a company that is working to build the economic infrastructure of the internet. They help people start internet businesses and accept online payments from customers all over the world. With that, Please welcome Jonathan Haidt. Welcome everyone to today's Long Now Talk. It's a three-way conversation. It's gonna be me, Stuart Brands. I'm the president of the Long Now Foundation. And um, please welcome also from Long Now, Kevin Kelly, who is uh, known as the senior maverick at Wired, but he's also co-chair of the Long Now Foundation. Thank you, Stuart. Glad you're here. Joining us today is Jonathan Haidt. He's a social psychologist at New York University. And I'm going to mention just two titles of the works that he's done. One is a book uh, from a couple of years ago called The Righteous Mind, Why Good People Are Divided by Politics and Religion. And then this year, we uh, got stimulated to invite him to one of these occasions by the title and then content of a piece he wrote for The Atlantic titled, Why the Past 10 Years of American Life Have Been Uniquely Stupid. And then the subtitle, which he may or may not have provided, but he can explain (laughs) is, it's not just a phase. (laughs) Uh, Why is it not just a phase and and what made it so stupid? Thanks so much, Stuart and Kevin. What a pleasure to be talking with you both. Um, So, I'm a social psychologist and I study morality. In my work, I try to take a really long perspective. I I often try to start with what made humans unique beginning one or two million years ago when we became cultural creatures. Um, So I love taking this very long perspective on humanity and seeing that we evolved to be tribal religious creatures. We we have animistic gods, we dance around campfires, we move in synchrony, this is human nature. Mm -hmm. And over time, we've developed institutions that allow us to live in the modern world incredibly peacefully. And we've had so much progress of the sort that the two of you have written about and Steve Pinker writes about. So I'm with you on all of that that background, that perspective on, on humanity and an extraordinary upward or ascent into prosperity and peace and health and rights and equality. <clears throat> Until about 2014, 2015. Um, so I, I'm a professor, I teach on campus, and weird stuff started happening in 2014. Uh, we saw students suddenly objecting to words and books and speakers. Uh, we saw them uh, bringing in ideas that words are violent. So all this strange stuff was happening. We thought it was just something about college students. My friend Greg Lukianoff and I wrote an article about this called The Coddling of the American Mind in the Atlantic in 2015. Mm-hmm. 
uh, it came out in August, and then in October, uh, November of that year, many universities kind of blew up, and, and this new culture came in. And it's a culture that could not have happened without Twitter and other platforms. It's a culture of fear and attack. And this is completely incompatible with academic life. We, we have to be able to talk, question each other, challenge ideas. We have to do that or there's no point in coming to work. And all of a sudden, anything you say, you could be called out for. Uh, if, if you question received wisdom, you will, you, there could be a, literally a movement to get you fired. Um, and so academic life changed in 2015 in a very qualitative way. But we still thought that it was just something weird about universities. Um, and I was puzzling over this and puzzling, what the hell happened to us? And then it began to happen in journalism and in the arts. Mm -hmm. Talk to any museum director anywhere in America, mm -hmm. um, uh, uh, in uh, uh, um, uh, media, uh, and in many parts of tech. And a lot of it has to do with areas where there's very little political diversity. When almost everybody's on one side, you get these mm -hmm. dynamics. So I don't want to go too deep into the story now, but that's what the article is about. It's about mm -hmm. what happens when tech, what social media we're talking about, allows everyone to intimidate everybody to attack or, or ruin the reputation with no accountability, no need for evidence, no nuance, no context. I've spoken to a lot of people who've been canceled um, and it is terrifying. Social death is what the ancients used to use. You know, if you're guilty, either we kill you or we exile you and make you socially dead. Uh, mm -hmm. And modern people are not prepared for it. So um, it's really, this is my main chart that, that social media in particular, and here I especially mean a few business models that are about optimizing for engagement. So especially Twitter, to a lesser extent, you know, Facebook, TikTok, we'll see that's going to, that's probably going to play a bigger role later. Mm -hmm. um, so that's what I'm talking about. And it's changed the institutions. Well, it's interesting. Um, my sense is that you're a liberal, John. Is that true? Well, oh, my God, I am a liberal in the not. I was always a liberal in the sense of on the left. And, and I've always been a Democrat. But what's happening to us now is um, is we're in a polarization spiral where the right. I've been focusing on the left so far because that's what's affecting universities. But a parallel process is happening on the right. So the right is no longer conservative. We have the extreme far right. We have a MAGA movement that has no connection to Edmund Burke or the wisdom of conservatism. We have a far right, which is increasingly prone to violence and militias. Uh, and that's driven by, uh, as well, by social media, uh, 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 changing the media ecology in which they operate and the things they believe. Um, and we have a left, which is moving further to the left, um, and becoming increasingly illiberal. So the right is not conservative, the left is not liberal, but I'm a liberal in the sense of liberal democracy. I believe the best kind of life for human beings is one in which we have rule of law, uh, due process, freedom of speech. So the world that I grew up in, the late 20th century, was making extraordinary progress towards, uh, I would almost say, a liberal utopia, or at least I would just say a, a good liberal society, until about 2014, and then it all ran off the rails. So uh, I have a question, John. Um, you, you described this mechanism where, where the um, compounding amplification of uh, dis, you know, dissatisfaction, whatever would cause this um, cancellation and, and people becoming timid. Mm -hmm. um, why don't we see that on the right? It, because they're using the same technology. Oh, well, so, okay. So this is, there. we do, but there's an asymmetry. And this was a subtle point in my Atlantic article, but it's one which I think is very, very helpful in our present moment, especially as we come towards the midterms. So what I argued in the article is that of the two major political parties in the United States, the Republican Party is the stupid party. And what I mean by that is not that they're unintelligent, but that their dynamics are such that if you, if you question Donald Trump, if you say that, oh, you know, I'm going to vote for impeachment, um, you're dead. You're politically dead. Uh, and, you know, as Liz Cheney found out, as everybody, everybody just about who challenged Donald Trump mm -hmm. is dead. Um, uh, you know, electorally. So you're saying they were, they were canceled is what you were saying. That's right. So the, so the Republican Party is the stupid party because it does not have the normal dynamics of some people say we should do this, but other people say we shouldn't do this. That's normal. They don't have that anymore. That's incredibly dangerous to have a two-party system where one party is stupid and unable to think is incredibly dangerous, okay? And people, including me, say, now look at the Democrats. It's not like that. 
the Democrats have a woke wing, but who wins the debates? It's almost always the moderates. So the Democratic Party is not the stupid party. And people on the left keep attacking me or you know, just criticizing me, saying, how can you say, you know, look at the Republicans, look what they're doing. And I say, you know, you're right. You're right. That is the stupid party. Democrats are not the stupid party. So, so you're not, a, you're not, okay, sorry, go ahead, Kevin. Yeah, but I, 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 I have, to, I have to, to do understand. the other side. Oh, I have okay. to get the other right. side. In. Otherwise, this clip will be excised and they'll <laughs> say, Height said the Republican Party is stupid. No, let me finish. I have to finish because now put yourself, not looking at the parties, put yourself in the perspective of a citizen, a citizen on the right or a citizen on the left. And if you're a citizen on the right, um, what do you see happening? Um, you see uh, just insane stuff happening to your children because of the cultural left. You see school closures um, driven by what? Uh, by the teachers union, by bizarre claims that are just not relevant to children. Um, you see the Sa San Francisco, of course, is the poster child. Uh, the schools are closed, but boy, they're gonna rename everything that was named after Abe Lincoln. And it doesn't even matter that the argument was historically inaccurate, had nothing to do, you know, so the, the, the arguments are stupid, they make no sense, but no one dares challenge them. So the, let me just stay with the, with the Republican angle for a minute. Um, I've been watching the process, I'm sure you have too, since 1994 when Newt Gingrich set in motion a uh, Republican representative approach uh, that, tried to keep people out of town, living with their families yes. where they came from so they wouldn't uh, become friendly with Democrats. That set in motion the idea that no Democratic president was going to have a successful administration and that anybody who was uh, in any way a moderate would be expunged from the party. Mm -hmm. So that started uh, 20 years before mm -hmm. uh, 2014. And the process was far along. And it sounds like you're saying the process then went even further because of what social media started doing in 2014. Is that right? Yes, but let me put a little nuance in there. So first, if we look at polarization, at affective polarization, the degree mm -hmm. to which people on each side hate or fear the other side, mm -hmm. that was pretty level in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. And it only begins to go up in the late 90s, in part because of the kinds of events you're talking about. The Republican Party begins to radicalize. Now here, Fox News plays a big role. Um, and the move from broadcasting, and this is crucial for what's going to come. Hmm. Broadcasting was a temporary period of American history where we had a message beamed out to hundreds of millions of people, and we all got the same information. That was a temporary, it was a few decades. And that gave incredible centripetal force. That was a real binding factor in the country. So cable TV begins to undo that, begin to fragment, and Fox News begins in 1996 or something like that. And then they get more and more partisan. They discover that that's what sells. So mm -hmm. it is true that for polarization, a big part of the blame goes to cable TV, which radicalized the right. It did not radicalize the left. Also happened in uh, radio that the right got more radicalized and the left that's not right. so much. Yep, that's right. That's right. So so the, those old line, the, the radio and TV that was mastered by Republicans, the Democrats, or the left tried, they never really, Air America never really took off. But th then the left colonized late night comedy like Jon Stewart. But okay, so that's the older media ecosystem. But it's not just a one dimensional, like how, how strong is polarization? What happened, I argue, after uh, around 2014, what happened around then wasn't just, oh, now we hate each other more because of Twitter. It's not that. It's um, two things. One is, well, now we're afraid of each other. Fox News did not make me afraid of my students. Yeah. Um, Twitter does. Uh, most of them are lovely, but if I say anything, any one of them can publicize it, they can report mm -hmm. me. So um, Twitter has, a, or social media in general, uh, and, um, and Slack also, these have a unique quality. It's mm -hmm. not just increasing polarization, it's fragmenting and making people afraid of each other. Another difference, is that people, people say, and I, Facebook wrote a response to me and, and I wrote a response to them. And they said, but you said, said well, it, you know, isn't cable TV, isn't that what caused most of this? Well, what happened to cable TV once uh, Facebook took all of the, um, Facebook and Twitter got all of the, you know, the, the ad revenue? Um, everyone had, all of the networks have to now coordinate, they, 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 they sync up with social media. And if you look at any right wing talk show now, they have an incredible lab that finds them the most outrageous story of the day, every day. And it's just right. whatever's trending on Twitter. So, so, so 
social media has made mainstream media much more toxic, much more nasty, much better at making people angry. So, um, so far the conversation has been very U.S. centric and um, together the two other largest countries in the world, China and India combined have 10 times the population of the U.S. and increasingly um, 10 times the influence. So are you seeing the same kinds of things happening in India and China, Brazil, Indonesia, all the other large countries of the world? Yeah. And, and, and that would be, for me, a, a, a almost a more persuasive um, case mm-hmm. if it was. Yeah. So let's distinguish between democracies and autocracies. Uh, and this is a point made by, by Tristan Harris that, um, de- that the technology is helping autocracies be better autocracies. And by that, I mean more effective. So China is able to control what happens. Sure. They have TikTok in China, but it's got it's got sure. much more positive stuff. It sort of right. boosts patriotism. And they're thrilled that our TikTok is just making people so angry at each other right. and so mentally ill. Um, so, so China is the example of using technology to achieve a totalitarian dream. So the Soviet Union and Mao's China, they just didn't have the technology to really control sure. everybody all the time other than just brute fear. What I can tell you about Europe um, is, and this is from the revelations from Francis Haugen, um, is when Facebook changed its algorithm, I think it was to, uh, uh, I forget if it was the one to get more meaningful social engagement. They changed the algorithm and all of a sudden, European political parties found that their normal messages didn't go anywhere unless they made them more outrageous and angry. And they said to Facebook, hey, what have you done? What have you done? We have to be more polarizing and we have to be more angry. So Facebook can turn things up and down and, and it, we do have a direct a direct effect. Um, I should also say that I'm curating, I have a Google document. If, if you go to jonathanheight.com slash social media, I have Google documents where I put all of the published academic articles that we can find on democracy and on teen mental health. My kids um, grew up without TV, and but on the internet. And um, they've retreated from social media. Do you find that happening worldwide? Is is that, in other words, because of the outrage, because of the fact that outrage seems to be the single emotional tone that people just get tired of it and decide, um, you know, I don't really want it anymore. Um, do, you, do you find that happening around the world in any uh, degree? So, yeah. So first, let's distinguish. There's two separate problems. One is teen mental health, which we haven't talked about. And that's not caused by outrage. That's caused by Girls going through puberty, posting photos of themselves for strangers to rate and comment on. That's a that's a major, major issue. Um, And and there is clear signs that, you know, kids, they do move on from platform to platform. They were on Facebook long ago and then to Instagram and now TikTok. So kids do move around, but there's no sign of the mental health crisis abating. In fact, it just keeps going up and up and up. COVID made things worse, but it was a trend that was already unbelievable before COVID. And and that's Um, worldwide, too, as well, that... So I have good data. I can show that it's happening in all the English-speaking countries. I know that. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's some. Uh, it's not clear it's happening in the Germanic countries. That There's reasons for that. They, re- they let their kids outside to play. They let them explore. In the English countries, we all freaked out in the 90s and said, oh, my God, I can't let my kid out. It's my 10-year-old. He'll be kidnapped. So we have, we've made our kids weak, uh, Gen Z. We made them very weak, overprotected them, oversupervised them. And then that same generation uh, went through, pu- they're the first ones to go through puberty on Instagram. That never, that, um, there's evidence that that really is harmful. So that's the kids issue. On the democracy issue, um, there, um, I don't know about people changing around. You know, adults are mostly on uh, Facebook, uh, Twitter, a few other platforms that are extremely important for politics. Um, it is still the case. I mean, the um, you'll find in the Google document, um, there's, uh, there's, there is research on how various countries, the political actors, the, 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 the leaders use social media to weaken or, or uh, discredit their political opponents. Um, so that's all part of the political process. And, you know, uh, there, there should be ways in which this technology will get, give us better democracy someday. But for now, it does appear to be giving us worse democracy. So where did this thing about triggers and trigger warning come from? Is that part of all this? Uh, Yeah. So that's back to the teen mental health thing. Back on the teen mental health thing. So um, there are are multiple ways of looking at at human beings. And that's fine. That's great. But there's a particular Mm -hmm. way that sort of comes out of 
out of certain political movements that were housed, especially in a few departments, gender studies, uh, various humanities areas, but especially a few of the studies departments. Uh, and those go back to the 1980s. They were philosophical movements. arguments. fine. They're welcome at a university. But they, they try, they, they get students to see the world as divided into oppressors and oppressed. And anybody who's got high status of privilege is bad, they're evil. And anyone who's got low status is good, they're the victims. And, and it makes it valorous to be a victim. And what we're finding for a lot of for girls is because you get status from being a victim, girls are encouraged to emphasize their anxiety disorders, their depression, their mental illness. And so if mental illness becomes valorized, now everyone's fragile. I can be a good person by looking out for you. If the professor says a word or signs a book that I think could upset you, then I'm going to report the professor. So there's no evidence that trigger warnings are helpful. Well, sometimes these things just sort of pass away. Um, and, you know, odd notions go through that everybody turns out to have been abused as a child and there are all these satanic things that were done to them and and then they confess these things and have yeah. um, what turned out to be completely false memories and that yeah that that uh tortured us all for a couple of years and then it went away mm -hmm. um what mental illness is not like that this is yeah. not a set of factual beliefs this is we've had um if you look at young girls in particular it's between 50 to 150 percent increase uh, in depression, anxiety, self-harm, and suicide. Gen Z is extremely fragile, um, and now the oldest of them are 26. And it's not as though they're suddenly going to say, oh, well, I'm, I'm going to outgrow that. Um, if you go through puberty with, on social media platforms and you, and you don't develop normal social skills, your brain wires up differently than the normal evolutionary plan for human beings, and it's possible that the damage will be permanent. So you've been a defender of free-range childhood. Yes. What's yes. that about? Humanity has this funny thing called um, called the uh, slow childhood. We um, other animals just grow as fast as they can and they reproduce. Right. We grow fast for a couple of years and then we actually slow down. Mm -hmm. Our brain is ninety percent done by the time we're five, at least in terms of size, and we slow mm -hmm. down. We have a long period of cultural apprenticeship because we're cultural creatures. So during that period, mm -hmm. kids need to learn, learn, learn. And how do they learn? From play, play, play. That's the way mammals learn. So kids have to be outside playing um, with each other. And then we stopped that in the 90s. Kids used to play. I grew up during the crime wave. Uh, Stuart, maybe you grew up before the crime wave, but you know, there was a lot of crime in the, uh, from the mid 60s through the early 90s, but kids went out to play. Suddenly when the crime wave ended in the 90s, just by coincidence, that's when Americans freaked out about child abduction and we stopped letting kids out. We literally said, you know, I mean, by, uh, you know, in, in 2006, we hear the first cases of people being arrested because their kids were caught playing in a park uh, because by 2006, nobody had seen a child outside unsupervised in 10 years. So once we did that to kids where they were weakened, kids need to be outside playing. That's how you learn the skills of democracy. What game should we play? Well, let's, how do we figure out whose preferences? How do we enforce the rules? Well, this was an infraction, but it was an accident. Like, so kids need to do that thousands and thousands of times. And that doesn't happen on video games. That doesn't happen on Instagram. So mm -hmm. basically given our kids what you might call uh, experience blockers, uh, once they get on a phone, they're all on it all the time. The boys are on video games, which are not as bad. The girls are on the visual platforms, which are really bad. And childhood mm -hmm. is partly over. The free play is over. Um, and so I co-founded an organization with Lenore Skenazy called Let Grow, if you go to letgrow.org. And we've gotten laws changed in four states. There are four states now where you can't be arrested just because your kid plays in a park. Mm -hmm. Bravo. Well, once upon a time, I did a thing called the New Games Tournament where I tried to get adults to do what kids do, which is change the rules of the game mm -hmm. uh, that they're playing all the time. Uh, you know, they're in a, we played baseball vacant lot next to my house, and it wasn't big enough for three bases, so we had two. Beautiful. Uh, home plate. And, um, you know, we had to keep changing the rules on uh, what was a home run, uh, depending Perfect. on who was at bat and things like that. And the changing the rules, I thought, uh, in this kind of free-range mode is actually a, a very civilizing thing to do. That's right. And maybe that's curtailed by Little League and, um, you know, kid lacrosse and soccer moms and all this thing. Exactly. That's um, exactly it. That's right. Let's remember, when we say the American experiment, people forget what that means. It is the American experiment in self-governance. That's the experiment that our founders set out on, and it wasn't clear that we would succeed. 
can people govern themselves without a king? That's the question. And for a long time, the answer was yes. So but, then, how about the far right wing, the guys who are liking guns and all that stuff? Were they not free range children? Oh, no, they they I, I don't know anything about their childhoods. Um, there is actually a big left right difference. The left is much more overprotective of its children. So um, the right is much stronger than the left. Uh, and this is something Van Jones noted in, in his talk he gave huh. in Chicago. That, strong um, meaning what? Just physically strong? No, emotionally strong. That um, that the left has adopted a set of beliefs and practices that are crippling its kids. And so when Van Jones gave a uh, talk at the University of Chicago and David Axelrod asked him about, you know, protesting speakers and he, and he said, no, stop doing that. And he directly addressed the left-leaning students at the University of Chicago. And he said, I don't want you to be safe ideologically. I don't want you to be safe emotionally. I want you to be strong. And what we're seeing is that students are asking for these protections to guarantee that they do not become strong. And this is what we're seeing, left-wing organizations. There was an article in, um, um, what was it called? In what magazine was it? It was an article called The Elephant in the Zoom uh, in The Intercept magazine. It was about how progressive uh, activist organizations are all collapsing into constant micro battles because Gen Z is so easily harmed and angered. It's very difficult to work with them. It's very difficult for left-wing groups now to actually be effective. That's not happening on the right. They've got different problems. They've got militias. They are a real threat to democracy, um, but they don't have the, the quite the overprotection coddling weakness problems that the left does. You mentioned earlier um, video games and particularly boys. Um, video games themselves, the businesses would like to become more of a social media. In fact, that's happening already with Discord. Mm -hmm. People are playing other people around the world in uh, friends of friends and et cetera. Do you see a similar kinds of things happening with, or do you see a similar danger, I should say, mm -hmm. with video games? particularly the modern um, multiplayer video games? Yeah, um, in moderation, no. Um, if if boys, so, you know, so the, the research shows very clearly, boys went right for video games and YouTube. That's what the boys mostly do. The girls do the visual platforms. Um, if, you know, if, a, if, if boys are playing two, three hours a day, no problem at all um, for a couple of reasons. One is that it's synchronous. Synchronous is, is good. Kids need lots mm -hmm. of synchronous activity. Um, asynchronous is bad. Um, secondly, it is play. It is actual play, whereas posting on Instagram is not play. Um, so my son, uh, when he was uh, 13, uh, I finally relented and let him get Fortnite just before COVID. Thank God I did because he had no other social life. And he was, you know, you could hear him yelling and screaming and laughing and, and it is play and it is communal. And it's, you know, it's boys want to practice team versus team competition to prepare for war. That's what play, that's what boys play is aimed at a lot of it. So video games in moderation, I have no problem with. Um, now, they're very addictive. And when you, when you get kids who are doing eight hours a day, now they're blocking out all other experiences. Boys mental health is also really bad. I should be clear. Boys mental health has, has gotten much worse since the early 2010s as well. But I cannot link it to social media or to electronics directly. There's correlation overall, but I, I don't have, I've not found studies that show problems for video games. Whereas for social media and girls, it's, it's, it's very clear. Even, even the people who publish studies claiming to say that there's not a relationship, if you read their paper, you say, oh, actually, it always turns out to be a correlation of around 0.1 to 0.15. There are correlations and they're not tiny. So um, I don't know if we can solve this, but one, one of the, um... You began by saying that you um, like to think about the long-term effects of things, like to think of a long-term mm -hmm. perspective. Um, if we take this condition of uh, of social media right now, which, by the way, it, um, has only been around for, I don't know, maybe 7,000 days in total. It's still <laughs> an infant, still figuring out what it wants to be. Um, and you fast forward you know, another 10 or 15 years, which is about all that we can possibly even guess at. Um, what, do you, what do you see as some of the possible scenarios from your point of view of let's take this ignore the, the disaster and we all kill each other and, and we go back to the Stone Age. Do you see a possible way that it could work or be redeemed or, or mm -hmm. evolved? And what would yeah. that entail? That's right. That's the, thing, the key question for us here. And but yeah, let's let's shift our focus to the future. Here's where I really want to engage with you guys right. and actually have you challenge me because I'm incredibly pessimistic. 
mm-hmm. uh, about the next 50 years. So, you know, I was very much on the train of, you know, Steve Pinker, Matt Ridley, uh, you know, Kevin, your, your recent TED right. talk. Uh, you know, you look at the progress, it's incredible. And people have always thought it's going to hell, but actually it just gets better and better. Uh, and if we look at material progress, you're right. That's definitely true. It's going to be better and better. Um, my concern is, it's actually is a metaphor here is, you know, if, we, if you saw that terrible show, uh, Don't Look Up, yeah. uh, you know, they calculate, they calculate that a meteor is going to, you know, it's an asteroid, it's going to hit the earth on this day. And so I feel like I am a social science, don't look up guy. Like, <laughs> you know, I see there's a sociological asteroid coming for American mm-hmm. democracy. Others, there's reasons why, you know, Canadian mm-hmm. democracy, British democracy, not quite as vulnerable, but you know, the asteroid's coming for us. Um, I think we're going to have catastrophic political failure. I, you can't predict. And here I've got my friend Phil Tetlock standing over my shoulder saying, John, nobody can predict anything. So, but, you know, if present trends continue and polarization rises and Gen Z becomes ever more fragile and mentally ill and mm-hmm. trust institutions, keep, you know, so uh, I, I think we can't keep going the way we're going for 20 more years. So we, something's going to have to change within the next decade or two. I'm also a big fan of Peter Turchin, who I imagine is has, has been talked about on this show. Uh, Peter, uh, being a Russian mathematician who has books on uh, what he calls cliodynamics, or sort of the mathematical study of history. And it was through him that I learned about Ibn Khaldun, a 15th, 14th century Muslim scholar who wrote about this cycle where there's actually an internet meme that captures it. Uh, hard times make strong men, strong men make good times, good times make weak men, weak men make hard times. Mm-hmm. So there are cycles to history, four generations typically. Um, after a great catastrophe, people come together and they create new institutions. That happened after the Revolutionary War to set up our country. Mm-hmm. It happened after the Civil War, set up the late 19th century, a period of incredible prosperity. Uh, it happened after the Depression and World War II, gave us the great post-war American period. Um, and Peter and several other of these theorists said, we're due for one, you know, 2010 to 2020 in that period, we're due for one. Peter actually predicted in 2010 that the crisis was going to hit in 2020. That's what he predicted. He has that in writing in Science Magazine in 2010. So, you know, things go up and down. I was raised on the, the up part, you know, you, you guys knew a little more of it than I did. I'm, I'm 59 now. But, you know, we had this incredible up period for American democracy, incredible progress on, you know, uh, civil rights, gay rights, women's rights, and I mean, everything you could care about if you're progressive, incredible period. Um, and now we're on the downslope and our country is more of a laughing stock and we all have a sense that we're in trouble. Now, in part, this is inevitable. There are these cycles of history and the post-war institutions that were created for the era of mass media can't work in the area of distributed everything. So um, we're going to have to go through a turbulent period. There was no, even if social media was never invented, we were going to go through this. Okay. So in that sense, I am not as pessimistic as I sound because I understand that like mm-hmm. things go up and things go down. Uh, it could take, you know, if it's a normal cycle, maybe it'll only take 20 years, 30 years. Um, but if it's like the printing press, which really took a long time to change things, you know, now we're t- could be talking about a century or two. Right. So, so there here, could be much better democracy in our future, but we don't know how far in the future. So one of the kind of little exercises that scenarios like, like to play is I'm going to be a time traveler. I'm going to come back from 20 years from now and say, tell you that it all worked out. So mm-hmm. how okay. did you think that? So what would you imagine that would oh, be? What, nice what, what question. Would have, what would have, hap- have, yeah. have happened? for it to all work out in 20 years. Okay, great. Uh, this is a really, that is a great framing. So uh, first, so we've got to turn off the spigot on mental illness in kids. We've mm-hmm. got to, so I would imagine uh, everyone joined letgrow.org. They gave them money. We were able to pass more laws. We were able to restore free range childhood. So the generation after Gen Z grows up better able to compromise, work out the rules the way Stuart did in that baseball game. That, that has to happen because the, you know, if, if present trends continue, 100% of people will be depressed and suicidal in a few decades. So that's one that has to happen. Uh, another that I think would have happened um, is some, some major government, probably not the U.S. Congress because I don't think it can do much, but maybe it's the U.K. Parliament. Somebody um, really got a handle on regulating major platforms. And if I say regulation, everyone says, oh, my God, it's content moderation. No, it's things like... Um, user authentication to prevent bots and Russian agents and, and, mis- and, and uh, man- uh, manipulation and coordinated attacks. So something has to get a handle to bring down the virality 
of, 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 of key social media platforms. It's the vera- it's not the content so much, it's the virality, it's the dynamics. So something has to turn it down. Like with the COVID epidemic, we all understand, you know, if R0 is five, you know, then it's impossible. If we have to get it down to like 1.2, you know, it, I mean, small changes make a big difference mm-hmm. with the virality down. That would be another thing. Mm-hmm. Um, another thing would be, I think, just a mass movement away from performative social platforms. So a sense of contempt or shame for people who live their lives on it. So I'm an academic and I see other academics on Twitter get sucked into it. Twitter makes you behave in ways that are so antithetical to the academic um, ethos. They make you quick to judge on little evidence, hot takes, um, nasty. Uh, so as long as, you know, as long as people um, are on these platforms and, and shaped by them, then they're kind of lost to civilization, I would say. Uh, yeah. And so I think we need a mass, mo- a kind of disgusted turning away. I I almost call it illiteracy. Uh, you know, it took us four or five years to learn how to read. You may need to be trained, so to speak, to use social media. Yeah, I don't think that would no. I don't. I don't think that would do anything because. So I'm just writing the part of my book now where I'm talking about learning out learning heuristics, and I'm drawing on Joe Henrik's wonderful work um, on on team culture coevolution and how we have built into us biases for learning. We have uh, conformist bias. We do what most people are doing. And we have prestige bias. We do what, if everybody else is pointing to so-and-so, well, I'll copy him too, whoever the most prestigious person is. So now it's the Kardashians. Um, So um, this is why, but so kids aren't just going to soak up what anyone tells them. And this is why you show me a hundred studies on efforts to teach kids something, non-smoking, you know, non-sexual, whatever it is, there's a program to teach kids I, I challenge you to show me results from, uh, out, you know, from a month afterwards that show any lasting effect. Kids are not going to learn just because you teach them something. They're going to change if the prestigious people are doing it. And so if the cool people abandon Instagram, well, uh, for TikTok, but if the cool people abandon all of it, then there's some hope. I would, I would put all my money on social psychological manipulations rather than on education. So I'm, I'm having a... A great experience on Twitter. It's a major part of uh, the research I'm doing for a book. It's um, relatively easy with the tools given me to mute somebody who starts getting personal or weird. Mm-hmm. Um, I haven't had to block anybody, 45,000 people paying attention, supposedly. But um, so th- there's en- enough of a traffic. It's easy to sort of keep steerage way to keep it. Um, sane and productive for me and Uh for the others paying attention. Uh, Likewise, on YouTube, I understand there's uh, pathological parts of YouTube, but uh, Kevin Kelly and I pay attention to the how-to YouTubes, Uh and they are brilliant. They are changing humanity in the most positive way possible. Everybody is capable of learning how to do absolutely everything. I agree. No, it is incredible. Yeah. Yeah. No, thank you for that. I, I actually, you know what? I make a note to myself before I start an interview. Uh, remember to be nuanced. And then I often forget <laughs> until I'm reminded, as you just right. did. So let's let's be clear. The technology is incredible. And most of the things it's given us are incredible. And Wikipedia and YouTube, these are unbelievable things for democratizing knowledge and, and all over the world. So I'm not a Luddite. I love the technology. I, I rely on it myself. And Twitter, well, I agree. Twitter, there's a lot of good things about Twitter, too. So I guess what I'm getting at is uh, when I was a kid in the 50s and then into the 60s, advertising was the big uh, bugbear. And Vance Packer did a book, The Hidden Persuaders. Mm -hmm. And uh, there was all this idea that uh, uh, there was subliminal advertising going Mm -hmm. on. They would show you an innocent seeming video and there were little uh, invisible shots inside it that would make you buy uh, Rice Krispies or something. Uh, my father was an advertising man, as it happened, local in Rockford, Illinois. And he said, well, that can't work. He's an MIT engineer. He must have been right. Um, but everybody was afraid and worried about that. And we tried to protect children from advertising because they were going to um, you know, uh, be distorted by it and, and so on. And then by and by, it got sorted out. And one could probably figure out a history of how long it took for that not to frighten people so much yeah. anymore. It went from a, a threat to a nuisance and yeah. we can manage nuisances. So um, 
just as Keller and I learned how to be on social media way back in uh, the late 80s with The Well, uh, where I got flamed right off of The Well. I quit uh, mm. because I was on the receiving end of uh, everybody's darts, not everybody's, but enough people's darts mm -hmm. where I felt uh, stabbed and, and uh, mm. didn't want to live there anymore, and I left. Um, and uh, I despaired of the medium, and we did not have uh, true anonymity. We had a sort of pseudo-anonymity where you could have a handle. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I'm increasingly in favor of basically no anonymity except under very certain circumstances. It sounds like you're in that direction too. Mm -hmm. Well, So I think that's the right way to think about it about what are parameter changes that would end up changing the complex dynamical system. And I think it's part of the difficulty here is that we're good at thinking about mechanical systems, but what we're talking about is really a complex dynamical system where you can't just like fix a gear, you have to change parameters and then those will feed back to like change the landscape. Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, I, I do understand there are arguments for, uh, for allowing people to be, to not use the real name. Um, I would like to see certain platforms will emerge and have emerged like like LinkedIn, where you have to use your real name. But as long as you're, we're gonna let people not use the real name, I think the important thing is that they be authenticated as a person. What I mean by that is right now, um, anyone can open any account, as many as they want on the major platforms. Um, right. I had a conversation with Mark Zuckerberg. He, to his credit, he reached out to a bunch of people who were you know, critics, I think it was back in 2019. And just before my meeting with him, I created a fake account for my daughter who was 11 at the time. I just lied about her age. I'd use her name. I just, can I create an account by lying? And yeah, very easy to create an account on Facebook and Instagram. Um, and so, uh, you know, right now, um, you know, kids can go anywhere, Pornhub, wherever they want. There's, you know, we're so careful in the physical world, but <laughs> on, online, you know, buy guns, heroin, porn, whatever you want. And, right. you know, um, so what we need to do, I think we, we do need um, some sort of authentication, just that you're a person, you're in a country and you're over 18. And then we have provisions for when people under 18 can get on. One of the things that would do is right now, there's a very small number of people. They're almost all men. There's research on trolls. A troll is almost always a man who enjoys harassing people, being, a, being an asshole. Um, yeah. Very small number of men, but one troll can ruin thousands of people's yeah, day. Yeah, yep. And trolls especially are nasty to women and black people. And yep. so if we care about people's experience online, we would try to cut down on trolls. Yep. And Facebook, Twitter, you know, sure, you know, eventually if you threaten to kill someone, eventually they'll close your account, but you just open 10 more accounts. So, yep. um, so that has to stop. Um, and if we did a few things like that, then suddenly Twitter, again, that would bring down the dynamics. The average user of Twitter is perfectly reasonable, but the extremes have a hundred times more influence than they ever could have before Twitter. And, and that seems to be, a, a, if I'm not mistaken, kind of your general theme is is that you have these kind of fringe cases that have um, polluted or distorted the entire effects. And what we need to do is have some way to to manage that or to reintroduce the kind of controls that we had in normal society to deal with people who are on the extreme. And um, I guess I'm a very tech-centric person, and I think that um, those uh, solutions will also come in the form of another technology. Um, I hope so. And and they are and they are they are kind of social inventions, and so there there's a social component. But I think we can figure out if we yeah. know what it is we want to do, how we could maybe civilize the, the extremes, so that they don't completely um, pollute the entire middle. No, no, absolutely. Let's get Kevin a little further on this. John. Okay, sure. Yeah. Uh, Kevin, Kevin's secret sauce these years is artificial intelligence. So yeah, are yeah. You, are yeah. you going to drool a little AI onto this and fix the problem, Kevin? Well, I'm not going to. Uh, everyone else's is happening right now as we speak. Yeah. And um, yeah. Um, and are you happy or unhappy about I, that? I, I am happy, but but I, I recognize the fact that. Um, AI, because it is going to be the most powerful technology in our lives, will also be powerfully abused. That is that is the rule. It's 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 going to be it's going to make the most powerful new problems that we have, and some of those will be the fact that it can be misused, and so we will have to figure out how how to do that. And there's people thinking about AI safety and AI alignment, and they're all good. I'm glad they're there, um, but um, this issue of like um, Going back to the bots, I, I'm 100 percent 
with you, John, that we should have true names only. Um, people um, who are speaking as humans should be really human. Um, but that doesn't, and, and, and we shouldn't be um, mixing, or we shouldn't be confused by um, things that are being generated by AI. But mm -hmm. lots of times, this is going to be a partnership, and that's that's where it's going to get really hard to kind of manage because looking at, say, AI generating art, um, most of the really good artists are going to be using AIs as tools, and these will be partnerships. And so unraveling mm -hmm. that degree is going to be uh, very, very difficult for us as a society to do it, and we'll have to invent new tools to do it. But um, in general, I think I, – I, I don't, I'm not saying that I think AI is a solution to the social media problem. I, I, I didn't say that. I, I think that um, – other basic things like we just talked about, like uh, demanding that people be true names and verifiable. Mm -hmm. I mean, even in Twitter, yeah. I would like to have a function where um, I would only be able to see and retweet blue checkmarked real people. Uh -huh. Yeah, real people. That's right. Real That'd people. be huge. That would be That's huge. Right. Yeah. yeah. Great. Now, th these are the sorts of architectural changes that I think are important. I've got another one for you because, you know, your question was, you know, will this, will the technology help us or will it save us? Yeah, Quite yeah. possibly. So I've just gotten involved recently with what's called Project Liberty. If you go to projectliberty.io, uh, it's an initiative uh, started by uh, Frank McCourt, uh, who founded the, the McCourt School at Georgetown. Um, and it's a proposal for an, an architect, a Web3 based architecture on which people could build applications and businesses where it would be sort of automatic that people can control what they give out. People retain ownership of, of, mm. of their own information. With mm. currently with web two, once the information is out, you can't get it back. Mm. But there, I'm just beginning to learn about this, but I think this is the sort of innovation, the sort of, of like, not just like, what are we gonna change in Twitter? What could we change in the underlying architecture of the entire technium yeah, yeah. Um, so that it's easy to build applications that are healthy and good for democracy? And it's harder to build exploitative, manipulative ones. Right. So, you know, look, Silicon Valley is incredibly smart. Tech people are incredibly smart. Uh, now, they do tend towards Asperger's and autism. And this is important. This is not just this is not an insult. This is just a fact about different minds having different talents. And so the kinds of minds that were so brilliant in creating mm -hmm. these tools are also the kinds of minds that are least likely to understand the nuances of social interaction and the difficulties that their products are causing for social interaction. Mm -hmm. So I think we need neurodiversity <laughs> in Silicon Valley. Uh, but, but ultimately, yes, there is real hope that, um, that, that tech suitably, uh, you know, enmeshed in teams of people and, and ideas and, and political diversity and neurodiversity really could come up with game changing architectures that bring us to this this promised land. Mm -hmm. I'm with you guys that that the tech could, in theory, give us the best societies ever, the best democracies ever. That could happen. It could, it's not going to happen in the 20 in the 2020s, but it, it maybe it'll happen in the 2030s. Maybe it won't be till the 2090s. I don't know. It, it, it's it, in theory possible. And then our challenge, and it's actually, I know I'm very pessimistic, but when I try to end talks on an optimistic note, what I find myself saying is um, we have a chance to matter. Like the things that we do, the decisions we make, the choices we make and how we use technology and where we invest our money and how we treat people, the choices we make now can have more of an influence on the future than I would say at any point since maybe the 1930s or early 1940s. Mm -hmm. um, this is a turning point in history. It's actually very exciting. It's frightening, but it's also very exciting. And Do you agree with that, Kevin? Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. I think this is a turning point in history. Yes, I think I think this is. Wow. I mean, we have the convergence of all these um, what, you know, Robert um, um, Robert Gordon would say, "Once in a lifetime, once in the planet's uh, histories, we have we have these headwinds or no, tailwinds of um, AI, <laughs> ubiquitous AI, ubiquitous universal connection. Where where for the first yeah. time we have a billion like people connected for the first time ever connected together. We have the um, urbanization, the almost a total urbanization of the planet, which is really great mm -hmm. news for so many things, mm -hmm. and." Um, we, we have these accelerants uh, going on with the YouTube of learning and disseminating science. And so, um, and we have other um, ones. We have one challenge, which in the long term is the population implosion. Right. But other than that, I think that the, this moment will be 
look back on as an amazing time to be alive because it's really just the beginning of all these things. And so um, I, I'm 100% that, that our decisions make a huge difference. And that's one of the things I would say, you know, I wrote the book, The Inevitable. What's inevitable are some of these things coming along. What's not inevitable is the character of them, who owns them, how they're controlled, yeah. um, how they're regulated, what role they play. Those are choices that we have and they make a huge difference. And so I'm totally with you, John, on this moment and trying to, to make the best of it right now for the next generation. Let me, let me put the problem a little differently to you, John. What if it's turning points from here on in? <laughs> yeah, that's the, uh, that's a possibility. Yeah. And, and uh, the acceleration uh, keeps re-impacting itself uh, humanity uh, does actually collectively figure out how to either manage or live with climate change. Um, and civilization just keeps cranking on. It doesn't slow down. There's parts that slow down, like North Korea, like Spain once did. But most of it just is increasingly global and increasingly increasing. Uh, what's, what is the mode to negotiate and find a way to live that way collectively, yeah. if any. So that's what my book, uh, the book I'm writing now is about. The title of the book is Life After Babel, Adapting mm. to a World we, we May Never Again Share. And so what if it's not like cycles where, there, you know, what if it's like this? Mm-hmm. And it, and, and it just keeps getting faster and right, faster. Right. And, and, and I guess that's the, the singularity. Um, hmm. One of the features of this speeding up is that we can't share stories anymore. There is no one, there's no common understanding. When 9-11 happened, there was a general understanding that we were attacked by Al-Qaeda. Um, and that's probably the last time that that will happen. Mm -hmm. We can't, mm -hmm. with the current technologies, everything is shredded. Social media mm -hmm. is good at creating little micro bubbles of meaning. But we'll never again, or not never again, mm. in, in the next five or 10 years, we're not going to have any ability to have shared stories. And if you tell me that, well, what if it's this? I would say that we would be so far surpassing the speed limit on human sociality. Um, we, yeah. we can't adapt to change that fast. Now, there's personality differences. Progressives like more change. Conservatives like slower change. Uh, that's the wisdom of Edmund Burke. And I actually think Edmund Burke is somebody that everybody should read today. Um, so uh, we might say that, oh, you know, progress, let's go faster and faster. But I think the conservatives are right that social order is very hard to build, very easy to destroy. And right now we're destroying it right, left and center. Um, there is very little respect for institutions, for democratic institutions, epistemic institutions, journalism, science. Um, so if you tell me what if it's just going to keep going faster and faster, I would say, well, now we're, it's, you know, it's like, what if we've gone over Niagara Falls and there's no bottom? It's just falling faster and faster in, you know, how, you know how water comes over and then it divides up into droplets? What if it's just smaller droplets moving faster forever and ever? And that's it. That is a vision of hell um, for Emil Durkheim, my favorite sociologist. That is anomie or normlessness. Hmm. Uh, just constant change, no community, no ability to even understand what we're doing. That's, that's the metaphor of Babel. So, so um, there's a couple of things. One is, you know, I spent until COVID, I spent an awful lot of my time outside of the U.S. And um, the constant question I asked about is, um, what's diverging? What's converging? Mm. What, you know, are, are we really splintering up into these atomistic little tiny this mist, uh, which is a wonderful it's vision? Mist, yeah, it's a mist. The mist. Good, I like it. Um, and. I, I can kind of concluded that there was uh, almost like uh, a you know the um, hypothetical Maslow's um, hierarchy, this pyramid, which he actually didn't draw, but we all blame on him. Um, that there was a almost a total convergence at the bottom of the pyramid in terms of everybody in the world, every young person that I could see wanted to live in a air conditioned box. Mm -hmm. with indoor plumbing and Wi-Fi, Wi-Fi being the most essential. And we was wearing <laughs> sneakers and T-shirts. I mean, it was like, yep. and they were studying exactly the same things in school. The curriculum was exactly the same. It was a universal. So there was this convergence at the lower levels of shelter, clothing, and those needs. But I felt that there was kind of a divergence at the top about what it means, about the mm -hmm. meaning of things, so, yeah. what we think our purpose is, what we yep. imagine that we're doing, um, our, our, the name of our job, that there was this divergence there. 
And so, um, I, I, so that's good news and bad news. One is this, is that we're inventing new things to do. They're great. I think the challenge which you have brought up is, is that there's not a shared story. That's right. And yeah. particularly as we go global, because I think, again, I'm always thinking in terms of global. Um, yeah. Is this happening globally? Is, is, are we diverting where there's not a shared story globally? And yeah, um, that's right. that may be the case. Yeah. So here I'd like to bring up uh, John Lennon's song, Imagine, which is an anthem for the left. It's a beautiful song. It moves me to mm -hmm. tears. But it asks us to imagine that there's no nations, no countries, just everybody right. living in peace, no private property. Um, and it, it sounds good to people on the left, but it, it's, again, it's a vision of hell to people mm -hmm. on the right. And I think the right <laughs> is actually more accurate here. Mm -hmm. And for this reason, not, I mean, it's, it's complicated. But what I mean is... Um, we, just as bees have to live in hives, they can't live independently. We are hive creatures too. We have to have webs of shared meaning. And could we have, well, fine. Why don't we just have a big global web of shared meaning? Why don't we all be together as one? That can't work. That can't work because how do we cooperate? We cooperate best when we're competing. That's what brings people together. And that's what created those periods of enormous social capital and progress was the wars, revolutionary wars, civil war, and World War II. Um, and our human nature is to divide up into groups to compete with each other. Now, our civilizing intuitions channel that competition into sports and politics. Those are great. And it's now it's running off the rails. It's, 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 you know, it's spilling over. And we'll, we'll soon, I think we're going to have a lot more political violence. We're getting some now. Um, but I think it's going to be much more like the 60s and early 70s with a lot more political violence coming first, perhaps from the right, which has organized militias that are, um, called accelerationists. They actually want to bring about the collapse. But we may, if the right takes control of the government, we are going to see political violence coming from the left as well. Um, I just want to read a quote from James Madison from Federalist 10, um, who noted, uh, you know, of course, Madison in designing our institutions, our constitution, um, he noted that humans are prone to faction or tribalism. And he said, um, so strong is this propensity of mankind to fall into mutual animosities that where no substantial occasion presents itself, the most frivolous and fanciful distinctions have been sufficient to kindle their unfriendly passions and excite their most violent conflicts. So if we all converge on having comfortable, you know, bunkers with Wi-Fi and big screen, everything, and, you know, uh, uh, metaverse, and we're all comfortable, we're gonna be fighting all the time. <laughs> Find things to fight about. And maybe not all of us, a lot of us want to live in peace, but a lot of people be fighting all the time over stupid little things. So we can't stop that, but we can channel it into good competition. Right now, we are unchanneling. It's running over the banks and it's seeping into everything. It's seeping into restaurants, doctor's offices. It's all over K through 12 education and universities. The culture war is eating us alive. I think we need a Geneva Convention for the culture war that says, we channel, you know, you know, like, you know, they had chemical weapons. They decided, you know what, this is just too terrible. Let's not use chemical weapons. I would say, you know what, you know, schools, our children, doctors, like, let's not do culture war there. Let's just, you know, insist on professional ethics and get politics out of those areas. I think it, we might be headed towards just mist, 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 but like mist with a little water droplets fighting each other in order to totally mm. mix the metaphor. John, I think let's end with you and, John, and, and Madison uh, pointing us in the right direction, uh, pointing at the uh, strengthening of institutions and the, and the uh, being careful with children. Um, this is such good stuff, and I think yeah, you're on the right track. Okay. Well, thank you. But you know what? I, we can't end with this bizarre image of water droplets fighting each other. Can I end with a quote from Joseph Campbell, which I think is the quote for our age. Uh, so right. Joseph, Joseph Campbell was the, this great mythologist. Yeah. He studied mythology in the, in the 20th century at, uh, was it Bryn Mawr? One of the liberal arts colleges. And from his study of mythology and of the hero's journey, a lesson he took from, from studying human, humanity's tendency to, to put everything in these big hero stories. He said, the lesson of the hero's journey is Participate joyfully in the sorrows of the world. Mm. We cannot cure the world of sorrows, but we can choose to live in joy. And then he says, the, the, the warrior's approach is to say yes to life, yay to it all. That's much better than water droplets fighting, okay? <laughs> We're here, bring it, it on. Is.
Fantastic. Thank you, John. Well, thank you, John. It was really great. I so much enjoyed this conversation. You're here. Thank you, Kevin. My, my pleasure. And thank you for stretching me and helping me think about the, the long future, the long now. Before you go, we would like to make a small ask of you as a listener. If you like our podcast, please tell your friends about it. We rely nearly entirely on word of mouth to grow our audience. And so anytime you rate or leave a review of the podcast or tell a friend about an episode that you've been thinking about, it helps us nurture this long-term thinking community. If you'd like to learn more about Jonathan's work, our projects at Long Now, watch these talks online, or become a member, go to longnow.org. As always, we'd like to thank our speakers, our listeners, our sponsors, and our members. This work would not be possible without you. Today's music comes from Jason Wool, as well as Brian Eno's January 07-003 Bell Studies for the Clock of the Long Now. Big thanks to our production team, Danielle Engelman, Justin Oliphant, Andrew Warner, Jacob Cooperman, Shannon Breen, Casey Kripe, and the entire Long Now staff who make each of these conversations possible. We look forward to talking with you next time, and until then, keep moving patiently, responsibly, and exploring the long view.